Now we come to 2 Kings chapter 10. And if you thought what Jehu did there was a lot, it is nothing compared to what he does in 2 Kings chapter 10. So I'm going to do this. Kind of like 2 Kings 9, it's going to be some of the JSV, which is the Justin, Justin Standard Version, and then some of the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible. I'm going to mix it together. If you want to go back and read just every verse, after this you can go back and just read every verse in the chapter. Okay, so let me set this up. He's now, he's killed Jezebel, and now he needs to find the rest of the descendants, the sons of Ahab. And so he sends letters to the city of Jezreel and tells the rulers to pick the best sons of Ahab and have them fight for the house, fight for the throne, thinking in that they're just going to destroy each other. Well, the people, the leaders in Jezreel are terrified of Jehu, rightfully so. I mean, this guy is so brave that he is willing to kill kings even though they have military power, they say, we're not, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at Jehu and say, Jehu, we're your servants. We will do whatever you ask us to do. So hearing that, Jehu ups the ante. He commands them then to find every son of Ahab, every descendant of Ahab, and cut their heads off and bring them to the city gate the next day. Wouldn't you like to be tasked with that command that has been given over to you? So they do it, were scared of Jehu, and Jehu the next morning piles all of the heads together and he uses them as an object lesson for his morning speech. I want you just to picture this real quick. Imagine you coming out and seeing 70 heads piled up right there at the gate. It's a terrifying picture. I mean, you don't want to mess with this guy, right? I mean, you're scared of him. But also something in you feels like, what is, you know, what's happening right here? Well, Jehu, he, see, he, he uses this as a, as a picture, and he explains to them why. Look at um, verses 9 through 11 in your notes. The next morning when he went out and stood at the gate, he said to all the people, You were innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all of these? Know then that not a word the Lord spoke against the house of Ahab will fail, for the Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men, close friends, and priests, leaving him no survivors. Now we're going to come back to this text in just a minute, but do you feel the, the, how massive this text? I mean, this is not an easy thing to read. Jehu sets out from Jezreel and he begins the journey to Samaria to finish the cleansing of Ahab's descendants. And on the way, we begin to really get a picture of Jehu's heart and the problems with his heart. First, he encounters some descendants of Ahaziah. Now, Ahaziah was the king of Judah, the descendants of David. And he, he sees them and obviously they don't know fully what's going on right now because they willingly tell him that they are the descendants of Ahaziah. And as soon as Jehu hears that, he tells his men to grab him and he kills all 42 of them merciless, merciless, mercilessly without stating any kind of reason. And nobody really knows why. You see, Ahaziah, while yes, that family had in some ways intermarried with Ahab, the reality was in the command to destroy Ahab's descendants, nothing was ever spoken about, about destroying the descend Judah's descendants, David's descendants. But in this moment, Jehu takes everything into his own hands and is just, he's on a killing spree. I mean, he is, you know, he's got blood on his hands and he's just taking everybody out. So he meets the descendants of Ahaziah, destroys them, and then he meets another character called Jehonadab. Jehonadab 
um, was an interesting guy that we learn about from Jeremiah chapter 35. And he was a promoter of fanatical sport, um, support of Yahweh. He lived a, a um, aesthetic life and, and a nomad life and hated everything about what Ahab's descendants were doing. The money, the houses, all of those things, thought it was terrible. So Jehu finds someone who has the same heart as him and he says, come on, you're going with me and you're gonna see what I'm about to do. They get to Samaria and when he gets to Samaria, he wipes out more of Ahab's descendants and then we come to the last group of people that Jehu's gonna wipe out and we're gonna read those together. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu, Jehu will serve him a lot. Now therefore summon to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. None must be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing will not live. However, Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the servants of Baal. Look, there's going to be a sacrifice but it's not the sacrifice that they think is going to be. Now, what's interesting about this is he tells them if they don't come, that they're going to be killed. But ironically, the very fact that they show up is what's going to lead to them being killed. So now look at the next, pa- next part of the passage. Verse 20, Jehu commanded, consecrate a solemn assembly for Baal. So they called one. Then Jehu sent messengers throughout all Israel and all the servants of Baal came. No one failed to come. They entered the temple of Baal, and it was filled from one end to the other. Then he said to the custodian of the wardrobe, Bring out the garments for all the servants of Baal. So he brought out their garments. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, entered the temple of Baal, and Jehu said to the servants of Baal, Look carefully to see that there are no servants of the Lord here among you, only servants of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and he warned them, whoever allows any of the men I am placing in your hands to escape will forfeit his life for theirs. When he finished offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guards and officers, go in and kill them, don't let anyone out. So they struck them down with a sword. Then the guards and officers threw the bodies out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal, then brought out the pillar of the temple of Baal and burned it. And they tore down the pillar of Baal. Then they tore down the temple of Baal and made it a latrine, which is still there today. Here's what this just said. He took the temple of Baal and he literally made it a toilet. (laughs) That's exactly what it says right there. And look at verse 28. Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel. But he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshiping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Nevertheless, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, four generations of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel. Now, verse 31, yet Jehu was not careful to follow the instruction of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins that Jeroboam had caused Israel to commit. It's been a bloody couple of chapters, has it not? (laughs) That's not the ones when you wake up in the morning and you're getting ready for your quiet time and you read through it and you're like, Lord, thank you for the word. (laughs) That's just not it. 
But I do think when we look at chapters like this that we do find interesting truths for our lives and we begin to answer even major questions that many people have about the world. You see, a question that some might have when they look at these chapters is about the nature of the judgment of God in the story. I mean, it seems intense, does it not? We've seen in the last two chapters spears in people's backs. We've seen dogs eating people. Heads rolling and stacked in a pile. And then we see Jehu, who is this very flawed man that God uses to enact his judgment. Many can look at a chapter like this and have a hard time with it. That you know, want to say, this is why I don't, want to, I don't agree with the Bible. Why does it have to happen this way? You know, surely God could have done something else. Well, Dale Ralph Davis, who is a commentator, offered some great just insights, some things that you've heard before, but I think that are helpful for us when we encounter these hard judgment passages in the Bible. He said there's two good responses. First, what we have to understand when you read the Bible is that God has no sterilized instruments. When you read the scriptures, what you see is that the Bible, that God uses not so good people, aka people like Judas, to carry out his plan. I'll show you some examples. Abraham was old. Elijah was suicidal. Moses had a speech problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Noah was a drunk. Jeremiah was too young. Jacob was a cheater. David was a murderer. And Martha worried about everything. And yet those are the very people in which God used to accomplish his plan and his mission. When I read a list like that, you know, there's people I counter in life that say, I can't read the Bible because it's going to be way too, I can't approach it. That just shows me they've never truly looked at the Bible. (laughs) When you read it, you go, you know what? Maybe I'm not as bad as what I thought I was. You see, when we read lists like that of the people that God used, it should give us hope. Hope that God can still use us, even when we fail, even when we mess up. Dave was telling me recently about about a new person at our church, and his story is pretty incredible. Maybe if you saw the news last year, you saw that Jonathan Ayers, it was the former owner of the Triskelion Brewing Company, and he closed it in 2022. And his story is pretty incredible. You see, Jonathan had been struggling with alcoholism for years, but in August of 2020, his wife finally came to him and says, you gotta, you gotta figure out what's going on. You gotta fix this, and held him accountable for his addiction. So what did he do? He went to, for the next nine weeks, to rehabilitation centers in in Black Mountain. And on becoming home, he and his wife found Celebrate Recovery at Living Water Baptist Church. And it was there that they found everything that they'd been looking for. He fell in love with the ministry. He fell in love with what it was doing for his very heart. And it awakened in him a desire to help others who had gone down the same exact path. That fire led him on June 18th, 2022, to close his brewing company. Let me read you the words from his announcement on Facebook. He said, we would love to lie and say that it was with a heavy heart, but the truth is our hearts are not heavy with this decision because our lives are not the same as they once were. Isn't that incredible? Here's what's really cool about the story. Jonathan Ayers and his wife have recently started coming to First Baptist. And on top of that, he has actually started taking classes at Fruitland as he is sensing this call to ministry. 
And Jonathan is now going to be the man who is leading our Celebrate Recovery ministry on Wednesday nights here at our church. One of my favorite phrases we see from a life like that and we see from our own lives, and that is this, that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Isn't that good? When we face judgment like this, we know this. There are no sterilized instruments. Sometimes there's people who end up doing bad things that God still chooses to use And in some ways, we should be thankful for that because we are all those bad people that God still uses. Second of all, how how can we approach judgment um, in this way? Here's what we gotta understand, that it is difficult to make judgment pleasant. Just the word judgment is not a pleasant word. Now, sure, could it have been a thing where Ahab's descendants just died peaceably in their seats, I mean, in their sleep? Maybe, but that's not what happened. That's not what God chose to do. Judgment is a messy thing. Remember, think about the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was not a sanitary moment. It is filled with blood and with agony. And then think about his return. His return is not a simple, just easy moment either. It's not going to be peaceful. Jesus came first as a baby. What's he coming next with? He said he's coming with a sword. <laughs> Judgment is not something that is easy. And so if we try to make judgment easy, then in some ways we miss what it is the Bible is wanting to do in judgment. You see, it is right that we should feel gravity when we approach these kind of stories. They should be hard for us to read. And why is that? Because it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Judgment should always be hard. And for us as Christians, stories like this should drive us to the cross where we see Jesus taking our punishment for us and that should cause us to be thankful. So that's judgment. Now, as we finish for the rest of our time, what I wanna do then is quickly look at Jehu. Jehu was a man used by God, but it was also clear that Jehu had a heart problem. And I believe that we can learn a couple of lessons from Jehu's mistakes that might keep us from going down the same road. The first thing we learn from Jehu's life is that explaining away your actions does not absolve you of your choices. If we go back to the, one of the first passages I have you read, you see him convince the people of the city to kill 70 young men who were descendants of Ahab. Then he goes towards the, in front of the people and he admits to killing Joram, but he says he ultimately wasn't responsible for these people. No, it wasn't him. It wasn't, it wasn't them. It wasn't him. And here's what he does. He then reminds them of the divine promise that all Ahab's descendants will be eliminated. So he doesn't put it on himself. He doesn't put it on them. He says this, that the one who's actually responsible for this right now is God. Now, this kind of reminds me in this moment of what it was like sometimes dealing with teenagers. You'd have a a guy who is wanting to break up with a young lady and he's afraid to break her heart. He doesn't necessarily want to do it. And so often what I saw sometimes is young men use this excuse. I felt like God was telling me to do this. (laughs) That does not go well. (laughs) It is not going to cause there to be no pain. I promise you that. (laughs) But in this moment, here's what we see Jehu doing. In one brief speech, he washes his hands of mass murder and also allied himself with the Lord. He's practicing something called double speak. Have you heard of that before? Double speak is when we use language to deliberately obscure or disguise what is actually happening. We, we try to make it soft, like you, you don't really, under, that's not really what I meant, or that's not really what that means. Wearsby on this gave a couple of examples of it. He said, taxes are now called revenue enhancement. 
And potholes are pavement deficiencies. And then one of my favorites, people are no longer bald. They are only follicularly, follicularly challenged is what they are. That's what bald people are. But we, look, we're doing this in our world today. Can I give you two hard examples in our world today? Changing sexual organs is not called castration in our world today. It's called gender-affirming care. Why? Because if it feels softer and approachable, then it's easier to, to get by. How about this one? We don't necessarily speak about drug addiction anymore. We say it's a drug problem. Why? Because problem sounds a lot softer than addiction. Now, these are extreme examples, but the reality is all of us do this. All of us do this with what it is we're struggling with. And we think if we can soften the language, then it's maybe not that big of a deal. But can I tell you, just because you can explain away something does not mean that you can escape the consequences of the action. Because that is true, what this requires of us is to be honest with ourselves and honest about our shortcomings and our failures. We've got to be honest with ourselves. I love this quote by St. Augustine. He says, oh Lord, everything good in me is due to you and the rest is my fault. <laughs> Isn't that a great quote? <laughs> Do we think of it that way? Often we use the opposite. The good has been attributed to me and then if there's something that's going bad, it's God's fault. See, honesty, here's why honesty is important. Honesty makes confession possible and then confession brings about cleansing. Second of all, and we'll move through these last two quickly, Second thing we, we, we learn from Jehu is that we must check our motives. We have to ask ourselves this question. Is what we are doing for selfish ambition or is it for spiritual dedication? After he leaves Jezreel, he comes across Ahaziah's relatives and he slaughters all of them. Something that was not a part of the prophetic word. We talked about that. And then he comes up on Jehonadab um, and, then, and he says something that truly exposes his heart in verse 16. He pulls him up into the chariot with him and he says, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Do you notice that? What is he excited about him seeing? His zeal. <laughs> see, this verse reveals that Jehu's divine commission had now actually become a personal crusade. Something just to make something good for himself. Russell Dilday tells us about the temptation of zeal and the problem with it. He says, sometimes zeal tempts strong people to cross the line between God's will and personal ambition. We've all probably been there in our life, haven't we? We are flirting on this line of like, wait, is this what God's actually telling me to do? Or is this just something that I really, really want to do? Many, I've told many of you my story of struggling with this. At 17 years old, my, some of my friends and I, we had started this ministry when I was 16 and it exploded We've got almost 400 high schoolers, high schooler and middle schoolers that are coming together on a Friday night, worshiping Jesus, coming to faith in Christ. And I'll never forget the moment when I was standing on the stage, I just got done preaching and I'm looking at this crowd and I tell myself in my mind, God, I bet you're pretty lucky to have me on your team. That's not what you say. <laughs> You've heard me tell you that before, but that is... That is the moment in my life where it had gone from being spiritual dedication to selfish ambition. My heart had gone from being a part of God's mission to it being my mission and God just being a part of it. We face this temptation. And I'll tell you why. Every single person in this room experiences heartburn. Now, I'm not talking about the heartburn you feel after you leave a Chinese buffet. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? Here's what I mean. 
Your heart burns for something. It does. You feel there's something in your bones that it drives you, it, it pulls you forward. And as a Christian, there are two things that can drive our hearts. There's two things that our hearts can burn for. It's, it can either burn for your glory or it can burn for God's glory. And separating the two is much harder than you think at times. So how do we, how do we analyze our heartburn? How do we do it? It was in the title of the point. We have to constantly be checking our motives. We ask ourselves these questions. Why am I leading this Sunday school class? Why am I helping this person? Why am I giving? Why am I serving in ministry? Why? Because we, we ask ourselves this question. Is it for my kingdom or is it for his kingdom? We have to constantly be dealing with what is in our hearts because if we're not careful, we will get down the road and it's much more about what we can do for ourselves than what, what we are doing for the Lord. And finally, the last thing we learn from Jehu here is that we should take down the idols of our hearts before they take us down. He was very quick to rid the nation of Baal worship, wasn't he? Slaughtered all of them. But verse 29, right after he slaughters them, it says this, that he did not take down the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. He just traded a, one colt for another. And he thought that that was okay. When you read verse 31, you see that this actually prevented Jehu from following God with his whole heart. It was the idolatry inside of him. He handled everybody else's idolatry, but he didn't deal with his own. Can I tell you the problem with idolatry? See, idolatry works like rot in the soul. And if it's left unchecked, it can wreak major damage in our lives and ultimately cause us to crumble. I read a story when I was researching for this, this, um, this, on this passage, and it was about a man who had one day was driving down this road and it had been raining profusely. And as he comes around the curve, he, come, he, he meets this old farmer who's standing there and he's looking at his barn in which the roof had completely fallen in. And he stopped and he went over to the, to the man and he said, hey, what happened? The farmer said, roof fell in. He said, the leak, it leaked so long that it finally just got rotted all the way through. And this is what we're looking at today. Well, the man looked at him and he said, why in the world did you not fix it before it got that bad? And the farmer said, well, sir, it just seemed that I never got around to doing it. When the weather was good, there was no need for it. And when it rained, it was too wet for me to work on it. Do you see that? How okay, the times when it's good, we're like, it's fine. And then when it's, when it's a struggle, we're like, well, we can't work on it right now. And if we leave this idolatry unchecked, what happens is, is that before we realize it, it begins to crumble our very souls. As we close, let me ask you this question. What is it that might be getting in the way of you being able to follow the instruction of the Lord with your whole heart? What's getting in the way of that? Because if it's left unchecked, it can rot all the way through. Friends, may we learn from Jehu's mistakes in this passage and may we seek to live lives that glorify God and not glorify ourselves. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. Passages like this are hard to read, but from there oftentimes we can gain great truth for our lives. Work in us. Continue to mold us and shape us for your glory and not our own. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.